Welcome to the HeartStrong Discipleship Podcast. Visit heartstrong.life forward slash login to access the notes from today and all the benefits of our membership community. One to the two and two to the three. Let the world see the Holy Trinity. Let's become HeartStrong Disciples of Jesus together. Father, thank you for an opportunity once again to open your word as we open our hearts and we ask that you would speak to each of us about our journey and where we're at and the things in your word that are applicable to where we are at in our walk with you. Thank you for all that you're about to do today. Bless Peter as has been prayed already. And use him today as you have been using him these past few days. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Barry. Pleasure. Uh, let's open up with the memory verse for the month uh, of uh, July. And if I can get one of the students to uh, read that uh, verse, and I'm hoping that uh, you're uh, slowly committing that uh, precious verse to memory. Would someone like to read that uh, memory verse? I'll do it. Okay, great. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Thank you, Marie. Thank you. All right. So we're going to dive into chapter 15. All right. So uh, as an introduction to chapter 15, Israel was at one of its lowest points in history. It had just rejected God's offer to enter into the promised land. Yet, immediately after this stinging rebellion and God's chastisement, we saw that we saw in chapters 11 and 12, uh, there's a change here. Israel starts to receive these precious tokens of God's mercy, care, and help. So let's go to the first verses. So God was merciful to Israel in that this section deals with sacrifice. Israel needed to be reminded of two things. The first was sacrificial atonement, which was sacrifice to cover sin, and the need to give thanks, which was sacrifice as an expression of thanksgiving. So the grain with the drink offering of wine that was meant to accompany the blood sacrifice really speaks of thanksgiving and joy. And the message for us is that we really can still be thankful and joyful in God, even if we are smarting from our own failures and from the loving correction of God. So God cared for Israel. He said, when you come into the land and not if you come into the land. And these commands could only be fulfilled in the promised land. Now, inherent in these commands 
was the promise that God would lead them there and not leave them in the wilderness forever. Many a believer under the rod of God's correction has felt abandoned by God, as if God has given up on them. But God is always near, always near to the believer under correction. So the next several verses now all relate to God's commands for offerings to be given. And the offering we see here first of the ram and bull each needed progressively greater amounts of grain and wine to accompany them. Why? Because they were progressively bigger sacrifices. And the slide here shows the amounts of flour, oil, and wine that were prescribed for a ram and a bull. And the message here uh, that I teased out, which resonated with me was, the greater our sacrifice to God, the more thanksgiving and joy should come with that offering. Verse 11 says, and thus it shall be done for each bull, ram, lamb, or goat. So everyone who made such a sacrifice had to bring it with the thanksgiving of grain and the joy of wine. God did not want grudging, griping sacrifices brought to him. If one could not serve God with gladness, then God didn't want his service at all. And a good cross-reference for that is Psalm chapter 100, verse 2. So we see in verse, verses 17 to 19, they note heave offerings to be offered. So heave offerings, these were sacrifices used as peace offerings that were either heaved or waved to, before God. Now these verses related to the offering to be provided when the Hebrews came into the land, as I know that. Even though they were a long way from the promised land, God here was setting their minds forward on the promised land. And this would help see them through the wilderness and prepare the hearts of this new generation to succeed where the old generation failed. So setting minds forward to God's promises is really important for us to hold. And Ephesians chapter two, verse six says, God raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Jesus. So even if we aren't walking in the richness of God's promises today, we need to set our minds forward on heavenly places. So here now in the next uh, set of verses, we see two kinds of sins being talked about. The first is unintentional sin. So the Bible talks about unintentional sins committed, and it's done with a degree of ignorance. Now, Pastor Terry covered this really well in Leviticus. Many today live as and think, if an action is unintentional, it cannot be sin. But many of the worst sins are actually committed with the best of intentions. Intentions matter nothing when the result is sin. So even if we have the right intentions, 
we may still be in very grievous sin. So unintentional sins needed a blood atonement. A bull had to be sacrificed when the entire nation as a whole was guilty. And a female goat had to be sacrificed when an individual was guilty. Now, verse 29 says, you shall have one law for him who sins unintentionally. There was to be no exception. Sin was sin. And was to be accounted for, even if the motives seem good. So the other kind of sin that we see here now is presumptuous sin. Presumptuous sins were deliberate. In other words, willful, arrogant, insolent. Now this doesn't refer to a person who experiences temptation with the normal daily sins with which the people of God struggle. This refers to blatant rebellion that defies the authority and mocks God. And such sin was not to be tolerated in Israel. This command was a cultural mechanism for addressing this particular sin and ensuring that such arrogant flaunting of public morality would not be rewarded. So we have a story next that actually illustrates this. So they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. Now this might seem like a minor infraction to us because it seems like such a little thing, the punishment seems unduly harsh. We really need to see it in its historical context. God had only recently installed the observance of the Sabbath and everyone held it as a holy thing. So to defy it like this was equivalent to committing spiritual adultery. Now all of Israel knew the Sabbath law and this man violated it with full awareness of what he was doing. So he went out to do that which was forbidden. And he knew the consequences if he caught, but didn't care. And it was precisely this kind of presumption and defiant rebellion against God that verses 30 to 31 are referring to. So the outcome, God commanded the execution of this presumptuous sinner so that all of Israel would fear. This was so all who would know that the social order and law of God were more important than any individual's right to attack or destroy that social order or law of God. So God in verse 37 says now, make tassels on the corners of garments and put blue thread in the tassels. Of, on the corners. So these were intended to remind Israel to whom they belonged. They were God's people. And such reminders are an effective preventive remedy for sin. So what we know about the color blue, it was just full of holy reminders. We look at the Ark of the Covenant was covered with the blue cloth, the blue curtains that adorned the tabernacle, the blue and blue was in the high priest's garments. Very significant. So verse 39 says that you may look upon it and remember all the commands of God and do them. So we might 
imagine an Israelite being tempted into some kind of sin, but then catching sight of his own distinctive garments, reminding him of who he is and reminding him that others can also see who he is. And what was that? A child of God and not a child of the sin he is contemplating. So in this sense, Christian themed clothing today and jewelry also can indeed serve a purpose. Such things can remind us of who we are and, and provide a kind of walking accountability of our conduct. So that was chapter 15. Let's go on to chapter 16. So while Israel now was sentenced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, we are given just a few stories of events that took place during that time. And one of the most grievous is this rebellion of Korah covered in this chapter. So what was this all about? Well, this rebellion, like all, had a leader and a lot of followers. The leader here was Korah, who makes this accusation against Moses. So what do we know about Korah? Well, Korah was like Moses, a descendant from Kohath. The Kohathites had the most exalted duty among all of the Levites. Their charge was to carry the holy things of the temple after Aaron and his sons had covered them with the specially, covered, uh, specially prepared coverings. And that's in Numbers chapter four, verse 15. So Korah was not content with what God had called him to do in serving with the other Levites. So he accused Moses of pride and exclusionary leadership. It was significant that this accusation was actually made publicly in front of 250 leaders of the congregation. And these 250 were men of renown. So Korah acted as if he represented all of the people. The truth was that he desired more honor, more fame, more position, more power, and prestige. Significantly, Korah, we see here, proclaimed the holiness of God. Look what he says, for all the congregation is holy. And he regarded strong leadership as unnecessary. Look what he says, Moses, you take on too much. And this was at the very time when the nation was not holy and desperately needing strong leadership. So Korah goes on to say, why then, Moses do you, and Aaron, why do you all exalt yourselves above the congregation of God? So Korah accused them of pride and self-seeking. So the real implication behind Korah what Korah was saying was, Moses and Aaron, you've assumed the role of civil and religious leaders respectively, but God has picked all of us as his covenant people. So we are all as qualified as you. Well, look at what Moses' reaction is. He falls on his face. And he says, tomorrow the Lord will show you who is his. Do this. Take senses, put fire and incense so the Lord will choose. So one of the duties of the high priest was offering incense before the Lord as a symbol of prayer and worship. And as the rebels claimed, 
they were equal, they claimed they were equally qualified to serve as priests. They were to, because of them, because of that claim, they were to take their senses with them. And God, of course, would choose among them. Now, the significance of what I just uh, covered will be covered more in more detail in, in verse 17. We'll come to that in a minute. So in verse 11, here Moses now starts to defend Aaron. He says, and what is Aaron that you complain against him, Korah? Moses doesn't even bother defending himself. He leaves that to God. But he does speak up in defense of Aaron in verse 11. He knew that Aaron hadn't appointed himself to the role of being high priest. It was God who assigned him to that office. So in verse 12, we see Moses calling for two men, Dathan and Abiram. But they say, we will not come up. So who were these two men? They were co-conspirators with Korah, way back in chapter 16, verse 1. They would not even meet with Moses, nor answer his challenge. But what did they do? They chose to actually accuse Moses instead. Look what they say in verse 13. You have brought us out of the land of milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness. So both of them colored the past. They thought of Egypt as a land of milk and honey. And they go on to say, you brought us out of Egypt to kill us in the wilderness. So here they are assigning an evil heart to Moses. So they spoke as if Moses and Aaron plotted to lead the entire nation into the wilderness and kill them. But then they take it one step further. They basically say in verse 14, you have not brought us in to the land flowing with milk and honey. So both cl claims here had this unfair expectation of Moses. Now it was true that Moses had not yet brought them to the promised land. Yet it was wrong to wholly blame Moses for this. And it's all about leadership. Perfect leadership is impossible. And leaders should expect to be held to a higher standard. But it is patently unfair to hold a leader to a perfect standard. So the men say, well, we will not come up. They consider themselves under no authority. They simply would not submit. Now note that none of the 250 men of renown were heard to raise an opposing vo voice to these harsh accusations. They did not have the courage to speak up. And they were wrong because they allowed Moses to be accused with no one to defend him. But here, as in many conflicts, silence is taken as agreement. If a godly man or woman, especially a leader, is being falsely accused and we say nothing, we have sinned. Why? Because our silence is received as agreement. So in verse 15, we see Moses restating the challenge. Moses, of course, is very angry. And he says, God, do not respect their offering. Now he knew he had done nothing to deserve such an accusation. And he did the right thing. He left the situation to God. And in verse 17, he reconfirms. He says, let's each take, each, let each of you take his censer, put incense in it, and bring it before God. 
Now, this actually specified the challenge that Moses throws down. So what's the significance of the sensor? Of the sensor? I talked about it a little earlier. So the sensor is this metal part that was used to burn incense and was used in the priestly, and I use the word priestly, worship of God. God used the senses with fire and incense in this test for a good reason. So since Korah and his companions questioned Moses and Aaron's right to lead the nation and conduct the priesthood, each group of men would come to God as worshiping priests. And here God will now show which group he accepted. So in verse 19, God says, he tells uh, Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from the congregation that I may consume them in a moment. It is as if God said, Moses and Aaron, would you please move away? I'm going to destroy all these rebels in an instant. And I don't want you to get hurt. So here God decided to make his choice immediately evident. In verse 22, we see Moses and Aaron falling on their faces. And they say, shall one man sin and you be angry with the entire congregation, God? This was amazing love from Moses and Aaron. Perhaps it was only their prayer that could spare the lives of all these men who tried to bring them down. Again, the importance of prayer is emphasized here. It seems that if there was no prayer, then the rebellious congregation would be destroyed. And Moses, of course, his prayer was critical at this point. So in verse 26 here now, Moses, in response to God's command to get away from the tents of the leaders of the rebellion, pleaded with the people to separate themselves from the divisive persons. And the same attitude should be among God's people today. They should, we should be staying away from divisive, argumentative, and contentious people in the body of Christ. Christians need some discernment and to look at what others do, not only at what they say. And the New Testament also speaks along the same principle. And I quote Romans chapter 16, verse 17 to 18. It says, now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. So Moses here in verse 28 says, by this you shall know that God has sent you to do this. And he goes on in verse 29, he says, if the Lord creates a new thing and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up. So God had given Moses supernatural insight to know some very special judgment was coming. That's what he referred to, this new thing. And this new this judgment was going to come upon the rebellious men. The earth would swallow them up as evidence that this man rejected God. So what happens while well, we see in verse 31, the ground split apart under them and the earth opens its mouth and swallowed them. So Korah, Dathan, and Abiram all three were destroyed in this precise manner. 
along with their families. That was incredible. Their families were destroyed too. Now we may be uneasy hearing the families were also destroyed, but it clearly shows that the families of the rebellious, divisive, contentious people suffered also, and often sometimes greatly, like in this case. And then in verse 35, we are told that this fire came down from God and consumed all 250 men offering now. God had judgment reserved for those who walked in agreement with Korah. Though not as horrific as what happened to Korah and Dathan and Abiram. And of course, their worship of the, of the 250 men were not received. To God, all these distinctions were lost. So in verse 36, God says, Pick up the senses out of the blaze, for they are holy. Let them be made into hammer plates as a covering for the altar. So the senses of the rebels were treated as holy and preserved because even though Korah and his followers worshiped wrongly, they still worship the right God. So the senses, of course, we see here were beaten flat and used to cover the main altar of sacrifice and thus memorialized to actually serve as an important reminder. And God further gives the instructions to scatter the fire that came some distance away. So the fire was not holy and was to be scattered. And this was a strange fire and not acceptable to God at all. But look what happens in verse 41. This is the very next day. All of the congregation started to complain or murmur against Moses and Aaron. Poor Moses. He no doubt hoped that all of the trouble was over when the rebels were judged the previous day. But now he has to deal with those who were sympathetic to the divisive people who, and felt sorry for them losing their lives. Look at what they claim. You have killed the people of God. So the accusation against Moses was really absurd. Well, Moses certainly did not kill them. When you think about it, when the earth opens up and swallows more than 250 people, it is evidently the hand of God, not of Moses. And then we see in verse 42, it says, suddenly a cloud covered the tabernacle and God appears. And he says, get away from this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. This is the second time God comes here. God reacts the same way towards the sympathizers as he did towards Korah and his company. These people needed to be, uh, deserve to be judged. And yet again, Moses and Aaron, they fall on their faces. This humble, desperate reaction showed that they took the threat of judgment seriously. They understood that it was no small matter or small thing to sympathize with a divisive, contentious person. God took it seriously, and so should we. So as I'm winding down, Moses reacts and he tells Aaron, uh, Aaron as the high priest over God's people to immediately offer incense to make atonement for the congregation. Moses and Aaron could have let God consume all those who sympathized with those who rebelled against their leadership. 
But look at what they do. Instead, out of love, they tried to stop the plague that had begun. Aaron ran into the midst of the congregation as this plague started, we're told. And his sense of urgency is characteristic of true intercession. And it says, so he put in the incense and made atonement for the people. So a censer filled with burning incense was actually used to stop the plague. Now, incense is this picture of prayer in the Bible, as in Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 to 4. Why? Because of the sweet-smelling smoke of incense that ascends to heaven as our prayers would. In verse 48, we see Aaron standing between the dead and the living, interceding, and the plague was stopped. Now, this was a dramatic picture of Aaron as, as high priest interceding for God's people. But what else? It is also a picture of our high priest, which is Jesus, and his atonement on our behalf. He stood between death and life for us, and he is the only chance for salvation between the dividing line between death and life. And there's nothing that can save the soul of man except Jesus Christ, standing between the, that soul and the judgment of God. So to stand between the dead and the living speaks of how serious the matter of intercessory prayer is. It is no casual pursuit or it's not a fatalistic exercise in self-improvement. Prayer moves the hand of God and moves it to stop death and to give life. And the question for us today is, when was the last time we prayed as if life and death depended on it? So this is what we are called to do as we pray for the lost. Your prayer of intercession may be the very thing that keeps someone you love from the judgment of eternal death. So we are called to pray. And verse 49 says, those who died in the plague were 14,700. This is a great number, but not compared to, of course, the consuming of the whole nation that died in the wilderness. And even now, this generation of unbelief was perishing in the wilderness. So this new generation of faith and boldness could be raised up to take the promised land. So that's the end of the devotion. So Pastor Barry or Pastor Joyce, if I could ask you to just pray and dismiss those that have to leave. Sure, Peter, that was an amazing devotional. Um, could feel the heart of God coming through in what you were sharing. So Father, as we prepare now to go into our day, we want to thank you that we can intercede for our loved ones, intercede for those that we work with, those that are in our circle of influence, that number one, they would come to know you, and that our behavior would reflect our beliefs, that we are men and women of you, O Lord, and that we seek to do your will. We seek to be a light in the midst of the darkness of our generation. And so thank you for what Peter has prepared. Thank you for this meal that we've enjoyed together today. And Lord, not just that we have tasted it, but that we're going to put it into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thank you for joining us today. A heartstrong disciple of Jesus is one who has been saved by grace and is becoming more like Jesus by abiding in Him, learning how Jesus lived, and following in His ways. One of the ways we are helping you become heartstrong is through the monthly training plan, which breaks down how you can practice and develop your spiritual disciplines. Each month, you will find the theme and the focus for the month, a scripture to memorize, a fasting and a Sabbath practice, all of your Bible study, events and schedules and links, questions for personal reflection, and additional recommended content for the weekend. Of course, you have to be a HeartStrong member to access this awesome resource. So visit heartstrong.life and click membership to join. Let's become HeartStrong disciples together. One, two, three.